0: section thirty one of lives of the queens of england volume seven by agnes and elizabeth Strickland. this librivox recording is in the public domain anne of denmark chapter three part three prince charles having now attained as much strength as his royal parents could desire and with it a very considerable share of beauty was taken from his tender nurse, Lady Carey, and placed under the care of masters, selected by his brother, the Prince of Wales. Sometimes the prince would tease him, and even make him weep, telling him that if, as he grew up, his legs were not handsome, he should make him take orders, and give him the Archbishopric of Canterbury, because the robes of the church would hide all defects. However, in the fullness of time, says one of Charles's historians, when he began to look man in the face those tender limbs began to knit and consolidate and the most eminently famed for manly and martial exercises were forced to yield him the garland the queen retained her girlish petulance after she had been for years a matron and even when she was the mother of a grown-up son that son the joy of her heart and the pride of her existence sometimes used a playful management to obtain peace in the circle of royal domesticity, where occasional outbreaks of temper on the part of her majesty produced at times considerable disquiet. With this very justifiable view, Prince Henry wrote the following letter, in which he mediates with wonderful tact, considering that he was but sixteen, between his father's jealousy of the queen's want of attention to his gout, and her infirmity of temper if subjected to the slightest reproof or contradiction henry prince of wales to king james according to your majesty's commandment i made your excuse unto the queen for not sending her a token by me and allege that your majesty had a quarrel with her for not writing an answer to your second letter written to her from royston when your foot was sore, nor making mention of receiving that letter in her next, some ten days after. Whereas, in your majesty's former journey to Royston, when you first took the pain in your foot, she sent one on purpose to visit you. Her answer was, that she had either written or dreamed it, and upon supposing so, had told first, my lord Hay, and next, Sir Thomas Somerset, that she had written. I durst not reply as you directed, that your majesty was afraid, lest she should return to her old bias. For fear such a word might have set her in the way of it, and besides, made me a peace-breaker, which I would askew. Otherwise most happy, when favored by your majesty's commandments, is he who, kissing your majesty's hands, is your majesty's most dutiful son and obedient servant, Henry it is amusing to note the judgment displayed by so young a man on the delicate point of saying too much in the mediation of a matrimonial dispute the queen's old bias to which he feared she would return was indulgence in sullenness for a length of time if contradicted or reproved his careful abstinence from mischief-making by declining to repeat to his mother messages sent in a passion by his father proves that the praises of wisdom lavished on this prince by his country were by no means exaggerated because temper and forbearance exercised in the domestic connections of life is one of the highest proofs of elevation of character the queen always manifested the utmost disgust at the spirit of injustice and rapacity she found prevalent at the english court no new traits as the preceding memorials of the tudor courts may witness she carefully guarded by her advice, her young friend, Lady Anne Clifford, from being plundered by the venal swarm who watched round the king for prey. George Earl of Cumberland preferred his brother to his daughter and disinherited her illegally. The king wished the young lady, who appealed to law, to submit to a private arbitration from those he should appoint. But Queen Anne the Dane, says the Lady Anne, admonish me to submit to no such decision this is the first instance which can be quoted of sensible advice given by the queen but from this time incidents frequently occur which show her capable of right judgment as well as good feeling she saw with infinite aversion the increasing profligacy of carr and his faction who were completely reckless in their abuse of the king's favour the functions of a court favourite in earlier times are little understood at the present era in the sixteenth and even in the seventeenth century the office of king or queen's favourite was more distinctly defined than that of prime minister in the dark ages a monarch was expected to be himself his own prime minister and general when he became something more than the leader of a barbarous horde such tasks could not be performed by him singly and he naturally called in the aid of any friend whose conversation was most agreeable to him if this assistant was not a dignitary of the church, he was viewed invidiously by the people and called a favorite. Sometimes churchmen were hated as favorites, but this was seldom, for the power of governing communities systematically was the great science of the prelates of the ancient church. But these sagacious observers of their fellow creatures could only preside over the civil department of the state. The king's lay favorite usually superintended the armed barbarians, who constituted the military force. But woe betided him and his master, if the military leader or lay courtier aspired to the office of prime minister, and laid his unprivileged hand on the ark of the civil government, as may be seen by the fates of Hubert de Burgh, Gaveston, Dispenser, Michael de la Pole, and many others. The reformation brought as great a revolution in the business of state in this island, as it did in the religious ritual. Laymen now performed all the offices of government, civil as well as military, and divided their labors into numerous offices. But the king, in whose person was combined, all reverence formerly shared between the regal and pontifical offices, interfered unavoidably in the guidance of the whole machinery a mediator was soon found necessary between the ministers and the monarch, a person sufficiently beloved by him, to induce him to attend, at proper seasons, to the dispatch of business, and to learn his will in matters on which he would not give distinct orders, but expected his ministers to know his pleasure intuitively. Instances occur of queen consorts taking upon them this diplomatic office, and there is reason to believe, that anne of denmark had thus interfered much in the government in scotland but after she became queen-consort of england she sedulously avoided all state business leaving it wholly to the demi-official called the king's favourite a person regarding whom by the way the king always required her to go through the ceremony of recommending to him the royal favourite in the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries filled the office of confidential secretary which included that of decipherer of the private letters received by the king and queen the most important part of whose correspondence was in that intriguing era written in cipher the office was therefore no sinecure it required the possession of considerable acquirements and if these were united to strong mental abilities the favourite became a formidable power behind the throne the king himself tried to educate carr but his capacity was so mean that shrinking from the onerous tasks laid upon him he clandestinely obtained the assistance of his friend sir thomas overbury this person was clever and learned but arrogant and ambitious in no slight degree he was resolved not to be kept in the background and by way of proving how deeply he was concerned in state secrets he talked publicly of the contents of some of the queen's letters, which had passed through his hands. In all probability, it was this breach of official confidence in regard to the private letters of the royal family, which occasioned the great aversion Anne of Denmark always manifested to Overbury. This occasioned her to write to the Earl of Salisbury the following letter, preserved by Bishop Goodman, with the explanation that the term of that fellow alludes to Overbury my lord the king hath told me that he will advise with you and some four or five of the council of that fellow i can say no more either to make you understand the matter or my mind than i said the other day only i recommend to your care or attention how public the matter is now both in court and city and how far i have reason in that respect i refer the rest to this bearer and myself to your love anna r on the death of the earl of salisbury may sixteenth sixteen twelve robert carr who had been recently advanced to the titles of viscount rochester and earl of somerset succeeded to the public offices of that statesman and he and his friend overbury became more arrogant and offensive than ever and at the same time more than ever the objects of anne of denmark's dislike which she certainly did not manifest in a very dignified manner one day somerset and sir thomas overbury were walking in the queen's private garden when her majesty was looking out of the window and she evinced her spleen at the sight of them by saying aloud to her attendants there goes somerset and his governor at that instant sir thomas overbury burst into a loud laugh and the queen forgetting that she had begun the hostility imagined that he had overheard her words and derided her upon which she brought a bitter complaint of his insolence to the king. Overbury, however, explained that he did not hear what her majesty was pleased to say, but his laughter proceeded from his friend, the Earl of Somerset, having repeated to him a right merry jest King James had made that day at dinner. The queen was forced, on account of this adroit explanation, to remit Overbury's punishment, but soon after he thought proper to enter her garden and march backwards and forwards before her bay window with his hat on though she was sitting there for this contempt she prevailed on the king to commit him to the tower where he remained a few days these seem very trifling offences to raise a desire of vengeance in the breast of a queen who had shown so many traits of good-nature but the flagrancy of somerset's deeds makes her aversion to his whole clique almost an act of virtue. The queen was persuaded by her son, Henry, Prince of Wales, to attend at Woolwich the launch of one of the largest ships that had ever been added to the British Navy. It was built by the prince's favorite naval architect, Phineas Pett. Young as Henry was, he had already supported this valuable servant of the country against the insolence and oppression of the arbitrary junta, of which the king's favorite, Somerset, was the tool. The queen threw all her influence in the support of her virtuous and right-judging son, not because he was virtuous and just, but because her strong maternal instinct and her queenly pride were alike centred in her firstborn, who was the darling of her heart and the delight of her eyes. The prince expected that every underhand malicious project would be employed against his protege, Phineas Pett, by Carr and his faction. At the momentous crisis of the launch, he therefore was determined to be on the ship's deck at the time she went off the queen and her train went on board the mighty fabric and examined it before they took their places in the stand from whence they expected to see it dash into the thames phineas pet himself wrote a quaint narrative of the scene he says the noble prince himself accompanied by the lord admiral was on the poop where the great standing gilt cup was ready filled to name the good ship as soon as she were afloat, according to ancient custom and ceremony performed at such times, by drinking part of the wine, giving the ship her name, and then heaving the cup overboard. This is the only record of an ancient custom, probably derived from pagan times, when Old Father Thames and his naiads were thus propitiated, even as the Adriatic by the Ring of Gems, yearly flung by the Doge of Venice, from the deck of the Bucentaur. Prince Henry had, however, resolved to preserve the cup and place it in the hands of the worthy naval architect. But unfortunately, the ship, though she moved majestically forward for a few moments, stopped halfway and positively refused to take her plunge into the river. Witchcraft was instantly suspected, for the ship remained stationary and the royal party waited hour after hour. At five in the afternoon, the queen and all her train departed to Greenwich Palace, where the royal household abode at that time. Prince Henry stayed a good time after their majesties were gone, conferring with the lord admiral and pet as to what was best to be done. He then took horse and rode after the queen to Greenwich, but returned at midnight, when the ship was successfully launched, and the prince brought the good news himself to their majesties at Greenwich Palace in the autumn of sixteen twelve the remains of mary queen of scots were by the orders of king james transferred with royal pomp to the costly sepulchre he had previously prepared in westminster abbey popular superstition was on the qui vive at this occurrence and the curious superstition was repeated that the grave was never disturbed of a deceased member of a family without death claiming one or more of that family as prey and when the promising heir of great britain henry prince of wales began to droop with ill health the foreboding was deemed amply fulfilled like his ill-fated grandfather lord darnley he was a very handsome lang lad having attained the height of six feet before his seventeenth year and having a fair complexion and grecian profile an unhealthy season was only required for the national pest of consumption to claim such a person as her own as the personal prowess of the champion was still required by this semi barbarous age in a prince greater exertions had been made by henry in the tilt-yard than suited the strength of a rapidly growing youth he had likewise injured his health by swimming after supper in the thames when he was residing at his palaces of ham and richmond towards the end of september sixteen twelve his illness could not be concealed by any exertions of his own, and his cough excited the alarm of his mother, when he joined the royal party on a homeward progress from the Midland Counties. An intermittent fever attacked him after his return to St. James's, and for these fevers, no specific was then known. They were the scourge of our island, and generally in the autumn, degenerated into the worst species of typhus. The arrival of the Count Palatine in England to receive the hand of his sister Elizabeth caused Henry to rally and struggle a little time against his fatal illness. The queen had ambitiously set her mind on an alliance with Spain. She wished the prince to marry an Infanta and her daughter Elizabeth to be given in wedlock to the young king of Spain. She had greatly raised the suspicions and exasperated the Protestant prejudices of her subjects, by carrying on a secret diplomatic treaty with the spanish government respecting these marriages her son henry though he took no part in the polemic cant of the day was a well-disciplined protestant and in his early wisdom foresaw that a royal household divided in religion could not prosper he therefore declined a union with a catholic princess of any country and earnestly promoted the wedlock of his sister with a protestant prince though of inferior rank the excessive love which the queen bore her son caused her to withdraw her active opposition to the union of her daughter with frederick count palatine she received this prince on his arrival with a sort of displeased quietude and only vented her displeasure by little taunts in private calling her daughter whom she hoped to see a queen of first rank in europe good wife and mistress palgrave the prince of wales struggled against his fatal illness and was able to go through the ceremonies of welcoming the princely stranger he was anxious to call brother the royal family had promised to dine in great state with the lord mayor on the twenty fourth of october when the prince of wales became so violently ill that he was forced to keep his bed he was worse on the twenty ninth when to the great terror of the populace that phenomenon a lunar rainbow occurred and lasted seven hours to the excited imaginations of the beholders, it seemed to span exactly that part of St. James's palace, where the sick prince's apartments were situated. The people stood about the palace in crowds, foreboding the most fatal results from this aerial phenomenon. They were so far right that meteors seldom occur, excepting in most insalubrious seasons. The prince had been visited by the queen and his beloved sister, Elizabeth, when he was first confined to the house the intermittent soon after was declared to have degenerated into a putrid fever virulently infectious and the royal family were debarred from approaching him the queen had always manifested a childish terror of contagion nor could the love she bore her eldest son surmount her fears for her own life but she remained in a pitiable state of wretchedness in this perturbation she sent to sir walter raleigh with whom she had frequently conversed to request of him a nostrum she had formerly taken with success in an ague which she thought would cure her son sir walter had been regarded with some favour by the prince and was now overwhelmed with sorrow for his danger which traversed all the hopes he had formed for better times for himself he had great faith in the piece of quackery which the queen approved and sent it for the use of the prince Unfortunately, accompanied with a letter to Her Majesty, containing the empirical assertion that it would cure all mortal malady, excepting poison. The Queen sent the Nostrum to her dying son. It was apparently some very strong stimulant, for he revived a little after swallowing it, but he expired nevertheless, just before midnight, on the 5th of November, 1612 the people were swarming round st james's palace ever and anon pausing from the grotesque and quaint pageantry with which they kept the anniversary of gunpowder plot to listen and gather the news of his last agonies he had been prayed for as one in extremity in the service of commemoration of that day and the catholics to whom the fifth of november was often a period of severe persecution had not scrupled to recriminate a judgment London must have presented a strange scene that night of the 5th of November. Crowds blocked up every avenue, from St. James's Palace to Somerset House. Some wept and groaned and howled, as tidings of the increasing death pangs of the heir of England were brought out to them from time to time. Their cries were even heard round the bed of Henry. The fiercer fanatics celebrated the gunpowder plot festival, and the idle and mischievous added their restlessness to the agitated multitude the queen under the terrors of infection had retired from whitehall to her own palace of somerset house and there she was when the news of her son's demise was brought to her the revulsion she felt was dreadful for a few hours before she had been informed that the nostrum of sir walter raleigh was working wonders rage mingled with the paroxysms of her grief and despair she recalled the message of Sir Walter Raleigh, that his nostrum cured all fevers, but those produced by poison. And in her ravings, she declared her dear son had had foul play, and was the victim of some murderous poisoner. The sinister visaged, Sir Thomas Overbury, with his arrogant pretensions and dark working intellect, mysteriously eked out the paucity of his patron's capacity, was the object of the wretched queen's suspicions. He was still in the full sunshine of Somerset's favor, and an uncompromising antipathy had existed between the virtuous Prince of Wales and the profligate favorite. All suspicions of this kind would, in these times, have at once been silenced, by the report of the physicians, who made a post-mortem examination of the Prince's body. The minutes of their report, still extant, have brought historical conviction that he died a natural death. The queen herself was probably convinced by them, when the effervescence of grief had subsided. For she certainly had sufficient intellect to be amenable to the testimony of science, since it was her particular request, that the body of her little daughter Mary might be opened, and the cause of her death ascertained. A circumstance which shows she had more strength of mind than many mothers in this enlightened era. Nevertheless, the words she uttered in the first delirium of her grief, were quite sufficient to form the foundation of horrid calumnies in an age when scandal was more shamelessly reckless than at any time, since the human tongue had acquired skill and falsehood. The poor king was not spared in these reports, but surely never did calumny wickeder work than when it insinuated that James I had, even in thought, harmed his son whatever errors king james might have regarding political economy his conduct was admirable as a father he had given henry an education which was a model for all princes not by lucky accident but with earnest intent founded on proper principles and the result was excellent and moreover the most familiar friendship reigned among the royal family the king had shown manly courage when the fever assumed an infectious character he disregarded all the medical warnings and remained by the bedside of his son while the disease was at its worst till the prince lost his senses in the agonies of death then the miserable father sick and wretched retired to theobald's but in the restlessness of his suspense he would return to the vicinity of the metropolis and took up his abode in the house of sir walter cope at kensington now holland house of this place he was quickly weary wrote mr chamberlain in one of his newsletters to sir dudley carleton for he said the wind blew through the walls and he could not be warm in his bed in short the impatient anguish with which both the king and queen took the death of their son rather scandalized all the religious professors at their court the marriage of the princess elizabeth had been long deferred by the sickness death and burial of the prince of wales and the count palatine had remained in england several months at a great expense and inconvenience it was therefore needful that the betrothal and marriage should take place as soon as possible after the funeral the queen was too ill and dejected to be present at the betrothment of her daughter which was done while the court and even the fiance herself wore mourning the marriage took place on the fourteenth of february three months after the death of the prince when the queen was present and was inclined to more maternal kindness towards her son-in-law than she had yet shown in remembrance of the brotherly friendship he had testified towards her lost son when on his deathbed and when he attended his body to the grave the queen was present when her daughter elizabeth and the count palatine were united at whitehall chapel it was the first royal marriage celebrated according to the form of the common prayer in england from these ancestors, her present majesty derives her hereditary title to the English throne. When the princess Elizabeth finally departed from England with her spouse, the queen sunk into a depression of health and spirits, which gave some cause of fear for her life. She was advised by her physicians to try the waters of Bath, to renovate her constitution, and accordingly, she commenced a western progress in the following April she was entertained on the way at caversham house the seat of lord knollis she was welcomed at various stations in the avenue and gardens with a champre masque, by campion of the same species as ben jonson's elegant dramatic poem of the fairies from which specimens have been given her majesty in the evening was so much pleased with the continuation of the same mask that forgetting her ill-health she vouchsafed to make herself the head of the revels and graciously to adorn the place with her personal dancing. Lord and Lady Knollys, the four sons of the Lord Chamberlain, Sir Henry Carey, and Lord Dorset, were the performers in the mask. The queen spent the rest of the spring at Bath. She seemed to derive benefit from the springs, though she was once, while bathing, terribly frightened by a natural phenomenon, which appeared when she was in the king's bath close by her there ascended from the bottom of the cistern a flame of fire like a candle which rose to the surface of the bath and spread into a large circle of light on top of the water to the great consternation and alarm of the queen who certainly believed it a supernatural messenger from the world below and nothing could induce her to enter the king's bath again the physicians in vain assured her that the apparition proceeded from a natural cause her fears were far from being appeased by their explanations, so she betook herself to a bath, which a benevolent citizen had secured on the dissolution of the monasteries for the use of the poor. Here, being assured that no subaquacious candles ever intruded themselves, she bathed during her stay. The citizens ornamented the bath she used with a cross and the crown of England, and the inscription in gold of Anna Regina Sacrum from that time it has borne the appellation of the queen's bath the hateful and disgraceful proceedings of the divorce of lady frances howard from her husband the earl of essex took place whilst the queen was absent in the west the same spring as she was by no means concerned in any part of that iniquitous business its discussion is gladly avoided here in her homeward return the queen was encountered on salisbury plain near a wild ravine by the reverend George Faraby, who had instructed his parishioners in church music. He approached the queen's carriage and entreated that her majesty would be pleased to listen to a concert performed by them. When the queen signified her assent, there rose out of the ravine a handsome company of the worthy churchmen's parishioners, dressed as druids, and as British shepherds and shepherdesses, who sang a greeting, beginning with these words, to a melody which greatly pleased the musical taste of her majesty shine oh shine thou sacred star on seeley shepherd swains we should suppose from the commencing words that this poem had originally been a nativity hymn pertaining to the ancient church and it is possible that the melody might be traced to the same source for the great english sacred composers talus blow and bull evidently caught the last echoes of the cloister ere those strains were silenced for ever in the land the music the voices and the romantic dresses so well corresponding with the mysterious spot where this pastoral concert was stationed greatly captivated the imagination of the queen she appointed the reverend george ferriby one of her chaplains and always regarded him and his compositions with a considerable degree of favour the queen was usually involved in pecuniary difficulties notwithstanding the enormous increase to her income granted by the king she had incurred debts in the years sixteen thirteen and sixteen fourteen the genius of sir walter scott in his comic mood has often made our readers laugh at the suffocation presented by richard menopoles to james the yet a more naive and characteristic supplication could scarcely have been devised than the following which was presented by harriet himself to the consort of that king to the queen's most excellent majesty the humble petition of george harriet your majesty's servant most humbly showeth that whereas the last time your gracious majesty was pleased to admit your servant to your royal presence it had pleased your highness to regret your gracious intentions towards the payment of your debts were much hindered by the scarcity of your majesty's treasure whereupon your suppliant did resolve, and as he still doeth, to forbear to trouble or importune your majesty, until it sooth please God, to second your royal disposition, with greater plenty than now is. Only his most humble suit, at this time, is in regard to the extreme burden of interests, wherewith he is borne down, and which he must shortly pay or perish, together with some other urgent necessities. That your majesty well be graciously pleased, to give your highness's warrant, to the right honorable, the Lord, for the discharge of the raiment, or remnant, of the account acknowledged, under your majesty's hand, and directed to the Lord Nevitt, in Anno, 1613, together with some other little things, delivered for your majesty, to Arthur Beaudrain, Page, for your majesty's use, in July and August last past, and your petitioner shall ever pray, etc about this period of her life after her recovery from the deep dejection that followed the loss of her son she caused her favourite artist van summers to paint several portraits in different costumes which still remain at hampton court her costume when she followed the chase must occasion both amusement and amazement to persons interested in hunting in the first place she was pleased to ride hunting on a peaceable-looking fat sorrel steed with a long cream-coloured mane altogether looking as if it claimed kindred with that valuable breed of cart-horse called the suffolk punch good creatures but never meant for the sports of the field when mounted on this most unique hunter she wore a monstrous farthingale of dark green velvet made with a long tall-waisted bodice a very queer grey beaver hat of the clerical shape called a shovel with a gold band and a profusion of fire-coloured plumes and this formidable head tire is mounted on a high head of hair like a periwig elaborately curled and frizzed the corsage of the gown is cut very low but the bosom is covered with a transparent chemisette and a brussels lace collar and brussels lace cuffs of three tiers buff leather gloves with gauntlet tops complete this inimitable hunting dress the queen's features are rather handsome she has lively brown eyes a clear complexion and an aquiline nose which droops a little towards the mouth the expression of her face is good-natured but rather bold and confident sometimes when hunting the queen took crossbow in hand and shot at the deer from a stand but the only instance recorded of her majesty's exploits in hitting a living object is that she killed king james's beloved dog jewel or jowler his special and most favourite hound the king seeing his canine darling lie dead stormed exceedingly for a while before any one dared tell him who had done the deed at last one of the queen's attendants ventured to break the matter to him saying that the unlucky shaft proceeded from the hand of her majesty which suddenly pacified him in the midst of his wrath it seemed said the writer of the letter which preserves this odd incident that the affection of King James for his queen increases with time, for they never were on better terms. He sent word to her not to be concerned at the accident, for he should never love her the worse. Next day, he sent her a jewel worth two thousand pounds, pretending it was a legacy from his dear dead dog. The queen's little dogs wear ornamented collars, around which are embossed in gold, the letters A-R. They are miniature greyhounds, a size larger than Italian greyhounds. These little creatures, we think, were at the time used for hunting hares. The queen holds a crimson cord in her hand, to which two of these dogs are linked. It is long enough to allow them to run in the leash by her side, when on horseback. A very small greyhound is begging, by putting its paws against her green-cut velvet farthingale, as if jealous of her attention. The whole composition of this historical portrait recalls, in strong caricature, the elegant lines of Dryden. The graceful goddess was arrayed in green, about her feet were little beagles seen, who watched with upward eyes the movements of their queen. The building seen in the picture behind the queen's left shoulder represents the lower court of Hampton Court Palace, before the trees had grown up by the wall bounding the green, or the gate was altered by Charles the Second, it has been said the scene was Theobalds, the Queen's favourite hunting palace, now defunct. But many of the features still coincide with the court of Hampton Palace nearest the river. The Queen appears to have stood on the pretty triangular plain fronting the royal stables, which now pertain to the Toy Hotel. This plain, in the eras of the Tudors and Stuarts and perhaps of the Plantagenets was the tilting place, and indeed the grand playground of the adjoining palace. Here used to be set up movable fences, made of network, called toils or toys, used in those games in which barriers were needed, from whence the name of the stately hostel on the green is derived. The queen was standing on this green, ready to mount, when Van Somers drew this picture, her negro or blackamoor groom had just led from under the noble arch of the royal stables which may be supposed opposite to the queen her tame fat hunter accoutred with the high-pommelled crimson velvet side-saddle and rich red housings fringed with gold surely when mounted on such a hunter and in such a hunting garb her majesty of great britain was a sight to be seen her painter van somers has added this notation at the left corner of the picture, on which he has, with Dutch quaintness, intimated a scrap of white paper, stuck on with two red wafers. Anna R. Dei gratia magna, Britain, France, Hibernia. A. 43. End of section 31.